Let's pray. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Father, would you restore this morning? Would you heal? Would you revive? Would you reconcile? Would you raise the dead? May it please you by your spirit to act on your word with power and conviction, sending the gospel arrow into the heart of every person sitting here now. I ask this for your glory. In the name of your glorious Son. Amen. Well, there's a title for you this morning, Gospel Archery. Gospel Archery, and we'll have a look at that passage, Mark 1, 40 to 2, 17. And I want you to have a look at the picture that's coming up on the screen. And you'll notice that, can you see what it is? What is it? It's an, it's an arrow. And you'll notice that there are three parts to an arrow. There is obviously the tip on the front. There is the shaft and what they call the fletching. What do you do with an arrow? What do you do with an arrow? You shoot it. Where do you shoot it, Olaf? Oh. Well, you, you, you take an arrow and you put it into a, at an apple. Okay, all right, okay, fair enough. Top of the head. We'll try it with you afterwards and we'll put an apple. My aim's pretty good at the moment. Um, you, you take an arrow, you, you put it into a bow and you, you, you shoot it at the target, at, at the bullseye. Jesus wants us to engage in gospel archery. Jesus wants us to take the gospel arrow and he wants us to fire it, send it, shoot it into the target of the human heart. Mark has been painting a rather extraordinary picture of the Lord Jesus for us in the first part of Mark. In Mark 1.8, Jesus is the spirit baptizer. If you look back in Mark 1.9, Jesus is the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53. In 1.10, Jesus is the spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah 11. In 1.11, Jesus is the beloved Son of God from Psalm 2. In 1.12, Jesus is the victorious serpent crusher from 3.15 in Genesis. We might say, as we put that onto the screen, that, that these, these descriptions of Jesus, we might say, are the shaft and the fletching of the arrow. But, but, but what, is, what is the tip? What is the head of the arrow? If you'll excuse the pun, what is the point of the arrow? What is it that we really want to shoot into, penetrate into the, the human heart? By the time we leave in a few minutes' time, I, I really want us to be able to have the gospel in five words. And I'm going to give you three of them. Jesus came to. We want to finish that statement. 
be crystal clear as what the gospel is, to be crystal clear as to what gospel arrow we are firing into the human heart. You might remember in Mark 1.17, Jesus said to his disciples, remember Andrew, Peter, James, and John, he said, come, follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. The question is, what kind of men were they going to fish? What kind of woman were they going to fish for? Here is a very profound statement by the theologian John Calvin. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. There is a knowledge of self that will not lead you to God. There is a, there is a self-deception that will lead you away from God. But there is a true knowledge of self that will lead you to God. How many of you have done archery before? There's a place in Bustleton that does it, somewhere down Caves Road. So you know what happens, isn't it? You, you take, and you better correct me if I've got this wrong. You take an arrow, and what do you do? You, 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 you put it into the bow, right? And then you pull it. Now, I'm not sure what, because Wage and Farmer Dale, help me here. As you, as you put it in there, you sort of, is it push forward on the bow and back? Pull the trigger. All right, let's try again. I'm never asking you anything again, I'm telling you. Uh, you take that arrow, you put it into the bow, you pull it tight, and, and with a bit of skill, pushing forward on the bow, pulling back on this, and, and what do you do then? You, you, you let that, that arrow go, and you want to fire it into the human heart. We want people to have a knowledge of self that will lead them to God. And what Mark has done in 140 to 217, Mark has taken three blocks, three parts of the life of Jesus, and he's put them together, one on top of the other, so that we can be in no doubt as to who Jesus is, what he came to do, who we are, and what that means for us. These are really three blocks this morning that are going to lead us to a knowledge of self that will take us to God. So let me ask the first of my five questions. Who are we? Who are you? Who am I? Who are we? The biggest mistake that you'll ever make with this passage in 140, with this most well-known of miracles of Jesus and the leper, the biggest mistake you'll ever make is to say one of two things, that because Jesus did it, then we can do it now. Or, or because Jesus did it then, Jesus continues to do it now. I want to say to you, it's simply not true. If we can do what Jesus did, or if Jesus continues to do what he did then, then we wouldn't need leper colonies. We wouldn't need hospitals. We wouldn't need great surgeons to do great operations. It's just not the point. 
And we know this cannot be Mark's point, because if you've got your Bible, look at the context of 140, is 138, 139. And you see there that Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. He's trying to get away from the healing. Lord, everybody's looking for you. They want you to heal. He says, no, no, no. I need to go somewhere else where I can, what? Do gospel archery, where I can preach the gospel. Look at the miracle with me. This miracle is not about what we do. This miracle is about who we are. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are. So look at the miracle. The leper knew that Jesus could heal him, but he wasn't sure whether Jesus would heal him. Have a look at 140. As it comes up on the screen, a man with leprosy or Hansen's disease comes to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And we notice the response in verse 41. He's moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. The Greek here is, is wonderful. It's actually a word called splansnitsomai, which means guts, or it means bowels. The old King James Version uh, put it like this, from the bowels of compassion, Jesus reached out and touched the man and healed with the word. What we see here is the sheer guts, compassion that Jesus has for a sufferer. And this is something that hasn't changed now that Jesus has gone back to heaven. The compassion of Jesus for sufferers, the compassion of Jesus for his people hasn't changed now that Jesus has gone back. And this compassion, this guts, bowels compassion that we have for sufferers, that is something that God has given us by His Spirit. Have a look at this in Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not Sin. I want you to know here this morning, brothers and sisters, that Jesus may not heal your sicknesses and sufferings in this world, but his heart of compassion, his guts, his bowels of compassion has not changed for you. And we know we know that Jesus has an unending uh, compassion for his, for his people be, because he knows our suffering. He knows our pain. He knows our tears. He knows what it is to feel and experience the full brunt of temptation, pain, suffering, and sin. Is this not a beautiful verse in Psalm 56, verse 8 in the New Living Translation? You keep a track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. I wonder if you realize this morning that Jesus doesn't just hold your tears, but he's felt them. He's cried them with you and for you that we might know something of the compassion of Jesus for you today. But this is not the main point of the leper. 
leprosy or Hansen's disease as it is known in those days was a death sentence and it still is in some remote parts of the world like India. Leviticus 13 and 14 outlines the terrible separation that lepers had to endure in the Old Testament that is then carried into the New Testament. Lepers were social outcasts. They were banished from moral and religious society. They were carrying a death sentence. They were powerless to escape. They had no one to help. You and I have leprosy. It's called the leprosy of sin. It is a disease that literally wastes your soul and your body. The leprosy of sin, it makes us heavenly outcasts. It's a disease that thrusts us out of the garden of paradise. It's a disease that does not allow us to go back into the garden. It's a disease that will not be covered by fig leaves. The leprosy of sin is a death sentence which cannot be cured anywhere, anytime by any human practitioner. While we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, while we were God ungodly outcasts, while we were spiritual lepers. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we? We are spiritual lepers in desperate need of someone with such bow-gut compassion who is willing and able to heal us from our sin disease. Do you have this self-knowledge? Do you know who you are? This is the self-knowledge that will lead you to God. Here's a second question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Got your Bible open? Let's go to the paralytic who was brought by four friends to Jesus. It, he may well have been a quadriplegic. We, we're not entirely sure, but a paraplegic, a quadriplegic, whatever the su situation, uh, do you see it? An, another, another death sentence. No cure, no, no hope of recovery. Growing up as a young boy, uh, my mom at one time worked at a, a psychiatric hospital. It was called Woodside Sanctuary in, in, in Cape Town. And it was a place where they put paraplegics and quadriplegics. They, they put babies who were dying of terminal brain disease. Every so often in an afternoon, I would go and visit my mom there. And what I saw left an indelible mark on my memory. I guess we can understand the comments of our previous Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, when talking to a woman who had a disabled child. He said to her, I feel so blessed not to have children who are disabled. 
They were ill-chosen, ill-timed words, but we understood his heart, didn't we? We understood his intent. The Greek literally says that when the men dug through the roof, they unroofed the roof. That's what the Greek says. It's so expressive. They unroofed the roof to get this man down in front of Jesus. They knew that Jesus could heal this man. They knew that. But they weren't yet 100% sure if Jesus was willing to heal the man. But they certainly gave Jesus every opportunity to do so. But as this man is lowered down in front of Jesus, Jesus' response could be considered to be something of being rude. It's not, son, your sin, uh, it's not son, you are healed. It is, son, your sins are forgiven. And it's right here that we suddenly understand the very reason for the extraordinary miracles that Jesus did. And Jesus even explains it for us in chapter 2, verse 10. Take a look. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what I want you to know. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and got home. So he got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of everyone. The miracle is not for us to copycat, but rather the demonstration that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive leprous and disabled sinners. And notice if you've got your Bible that as Jesus claims and demonstrates to be the one who can forgive sins, you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're muttering to themselves, who, how can he claim to be the one who forgives sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's blaspheming. Well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who? Well, no one else except for, except for God. Only God can forgive sins. So if God, so if Jesus claims to be the one who can forgive sins, then he must be God's divine. He must be God's divine son. Please understand this. God the Father does not give his authority to forgive to a created being. Do you understand that? God does not give his authority to forgive to a created being. That would be like God denying God. It would be infinitesimally impossible to do that. So in this extraordinary demonstration of power, listen, with a simple few words, God literally, Jesus wires this man's brain and bones together in a second. And he gets up. He takes his mat. And he goes home. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the sin forgiver. Jesus is the sin forgiver demonstrated in divine healing. We go to our third question. So why did Jesus come and you probably sitting here saying, well, that's a bit of a no-brainer, right? Well, if Jesus is the sin forgiver, then why did Jesus come? To forgive sins. 
And you can't really miss it, can you? You can't. If you look down to the bottom block, and you'll see it in 2.17, and on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Who did Jesus come to call? Leprous sinners. Spiritually disabled sinners. When Jesus, back in Mark 1, when Jesus called Andrew, Peter, James, and John, what kind of men did he call? Sinners. When he said to them, I'm going to take you and make you fishers of men, what kind of men were they going to fish? Fishy sinners. Who does, look at the text, who does Jesus call in chapter 2, verse 14? He calls who? He calls Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. He calls a notorious tax-collecting sinner. Now, something about tax-collecting in the first century. Tax-collecting in the first century makes the Australian robo, what do they call it? Robo-debt. Robo-cop, robo-debt, that, that thing. It's sort of, I'll call it robo-cop. It makes robo-cop look, look saintly in, in comparison. Tax collecting in the first century was like a pyramid scheme. Here's what happened. A Roman appoints a Jew. The Jew pays a franchise fee. Every month or every day or whatever, the Romans would get a certain amount of the tax collected, set fee, whatever was over and above went into your own pocket as a tax collector, excuse the pun, tax-free. You know that tax collectors were so hated by the Jews that the rabbis said this, if there's one person you could lie to in this world, you could lie to a tax collector because they were such despicable sinners in the eyes of the Jews. Jesus calls a thief, a notorious tax collector who stole from the rich and the poor to lie in his own pockets. And then notice in 2.15, notice who does Jesus have dinners with? Other tax collectors and, 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 and sinners for, for, for many. So as, as Matthew sort of throws the party, the dinner party, take a look. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and the disciples, for there were many who followed him. I, I was trying to think who they were. Oh, be careful with this one. I, I think they were the modern-day bikies that were sitting with Jesus. I mean, who knows what kind of fishy sinners were, were there? whole lot of leprous sinners, a whole lot of spiritually disabled, a whole lot of bikies, notorious, hmm, dining with the sin forgiven. But there were some other sinners there as well. Did you notice? Did you notice who they were? There were some other sinners there as well, 2.16. There, there were the, the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, and they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You, you see the irony, don't you? Sinners watching sinners saying, why is Jesus having dinner with sinners? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's the classic Romans 2 verse 1, isn't it? Classic Romans 2. 
Paul says, you therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. How blind are these pharisaical sinners? Sure, they weren't tax collectors. Sure, they weren't prostitutes. Sure, they weren't bikies. But their hearts, leprous in its sinfulness. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, gluttony, malice, deceit, lying, envy, slander, folly, arrogance, and pride. They're in every single heart, whether you teach the Bible or whether you teach the Torah, whether you wear a yarmulke or a hat, whether you wear pants or whether you wear a dress, whether you wash your hands before dinner or whether you don't. You see, in Mark 2, 13 to 16, in the midst there are sinners some that have a true knowledge of self that is leading to God. And there are some sinners who are so self-diseased, are so self-deceived, it's leading them away from God into death and hell. So we sort of land back in Mark 2.17, don't we? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick I have not come to call the righteous, but, but sinners. Understand that Jesus is not saying, well, there are some people that are righteous and some people that are unrighteous. No, Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everybody in Mark 1, 40 to 2, 7, they're all sinners. The difference is some see it and some don't. Some see their Hansen's disease. And some don't. Makes me think of one of my favorite sinners in all of the Bible. Remember old Zaki? Remember old short man up the tree? Up the sycamore tree? Can't see Jesus? Jesus stops under the tree and says, Come down, Zaki, I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. And somewhere in the story, Mark, uh, Luke 19:8, Zacchaeus stands up and says, Okay, Lord, Lord, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, boy, is that a true statement, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus had a self-knowledge that led to God. He was a thieving, leprous sinner. He saw Jesus the forgiver. And R-B-F from last week. Remember that? R-B-F. He repented. He believed. And he followed Jesus. Which begs a fourth question. How does Jesus forgive? Now I want to say to you, it's extremely difficult to try and wrap our head and hearts around the truth that the one who had no sin, 
the one who was not leprous in heart, the one who stood against every assault of the devil. So hard to wrap our head and heart around this Jesus who would then wrap himself around a cross to forgive us. Jesus became leprous for us. The clean for the dirty, the sinless for the foul. story takes us forward into Mark 15, and you remember there were two thieves or two criminals or two rebels or two robbers or two murderers, probably the whole lot. They, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. No, Jesus says, I'm not willing to come down from the cross. If I come down from the cross, if I save myself, I cannot save you. I'm willing to die and suffer so you may be forgiven. The compassionate guts, bowels of Jesus Christ to forgive leprous sinners nowhere more clearly seen as the beloved Son of God is suspended on a cross between heaven and earth. Christ dying for sinners whose sin is literally eating away their bodies and souls. Christ did not die as a moral example. Yes, Jesus defeated the devil. But the supreme work of the beloved Son of God is that He assaged, He satisfied, He turned away the wrath of a holy Father on sinners. Which leaves only one question. So what about us? Which of the sinners did you identify with in the blocks? Are you the leper? Jesus, if you're willing, forgive me. I'm willing. I'm willing. You're forgiven. Or maybe you identify with Levi, that notorious thief, or those other Glorious sinners, those prostitutes, those bikies. Can you just imagine them sitting around the dinner table with Jesus? They weren't talking about the footy. They weren't talking about the World Cup. Jesus, if you're willing, will you forgive us? Will you forgive us? I can just imagine as they're sitting there having dinner and Jesus passes out the bread. He breaks the bread and he says, here, this is my body and this is my blood given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm willing, I'm willing, be forgiven. Be forgiven. But maybe you sort of identified this morning with those 
self-righteous teachers of the law muttering how self-righteous you are. Well, thank God I'm not like other sinners. I'm not a thieving tax collector. I'm not a prostitute. I'm not a bikey. I'm not a murderer. But you can't see. You can't see the sickness of your leprous soul. So quick to condemn everybody in their sin except your own. Perhaps you identified with those two rebels on the cross insulting and cursing Jesus because you just cannot see what your sin deserves before a holy father. Would you be that leper? Would you be that Levi? Would you be that sinner? that has that self-knowledge to bow the knee before Jesus. Jesus, if you're willing, forgive me. And would you hear the words today, I am willing, I am willing, I forgive you. Let's go back to our archery for just a moment. In Mark 1.4, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 2.38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins. And the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Maybe we can put the picture together now like this. Could you get me out of the way there? Thanks. If the shaft and the fletching is Jesus the baptizer, Jesus the suffering servant, Jesus the anointed Messiah, Jesus the beloved Son of God, Jesus the victorious serpent crusher. Then the tip is the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That's the error that we want to fire into the target of the human heart. We, we want this arrow to penetrate the spiritual marrow, the spiritual tissue of the human heart. This is the arrow that we fire in the church, in the home, on the sports field, in the workplace. 
When Jesus said, go and make disciples, it's go and do spiritual gospel archery. Fire the arrow of me in the cross for the forgiveness of sins. If you've ever done normal archery, I haven't been down to this place in Busselton, but I have done it a couple of times, and uh, let me tell you what happened. I got my arrow. I pulled it into my bow. Maybe I tried to pull the trigger instead of, you know. And I pulled it tight. And I pulled forward on the bow. I pulled back on the string on that thing. And I had my hand on the fletching. And I pulled back. And I aimed at that target. And I let go. And do you know what happened? Boop. <laughs> it went about two feet in front of me. It was rather embarrassing. Shooting a gospel arrow without the Jesus of Mark and without the point of the cross for the forgiveness of sins. If you don't shoot the arrow with this, it's like trying to aim at something and the arrow goes boop and lands in front of you. There's no power. There's no penetration because it gets nowhere near the heart. Can you finish it? Jesus, sorry, don't take it off too quick, mate. Got to stay there. Jesus came to It's not. It's really not that difficult.